Our scripture reading for this morning is found in Acts, Acts 13, 13 through 16. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So when Paul motions with his hands and goes, Men of Israel, hear me now, he's about to tell a very, very important story. So um, just to be clear as to... Um, me not just pushing the story agenda. A guy named Leslie Newbegin says it like this. He was a missionary in India, um, brilliant man, um, mentored actually, a guy that's uh, mentoring me right now. He says this, um, uh, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. I don't have it on the screen, so I apologize. Um, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. Here, here what he says right here. What is the real story of which my life story is a part. So the way we understand reality, it, let me uh, say it another way. Um, well, not me. Alistair uh, McLaren says like this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? Right? So this is a, a question that we get a lot. Like, what am I supposed to do? I don't know what, what I'm supposed to do. The only way I can answer the question, what am I to do? Is if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part of? So the idea for you even to understand your reality is what Paul's about to lay into. The reason Luke is reminding us of this story over and over and over again, it's for you to go, I'm not just an accountant, I'm not just a teacher, not just a doctor or a firefighter, I'm part of a bigger story that God has allowed me to enter into, and that's what I hang everything on. That I have a hope that the world doesn't have, I have a history and believe something that the world doesn't believe. That's good news for us. So he goes on to tell that story. And, and he has um, some specific things that he wants to get to. It's, it's different the way that Stephen tells it, and it's different the way that um, Peter told it in Acts 2. This is what it says in verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with, upli- with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. So very quickly, if you know the story of the Bible, he doesn't even talk about Genesis. He's jumping to something very quickly. So we don't hear creation. We don't hear fall. He kind of briefly mentions Abraham all the way to Moses, honestly. You can just see it. Our fathers, when they're hearing that, um, in 17, Israel chose our fathers and made the people great in the land of Egypt. He immediately kind of just brushes over them and jumps to Egypt, okay? And then he goes on to say, and as, as uh, we just read, he makes them great in the land of Egypt with enough uplifted arm, he leads them out, okay? And now the reason this is a big deal is in two sentences, Paul just summarized the first five books of the Bible. So if you're a, if you're a Seinfeld fan, it's like Elaine going, uh, yeah, I don't know, God created things, yada, 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 Jesus, okay? And so, so, so here's, here's what we know. He, he's jumping to something, he's getting somewhere, and he goes, we have some fathers, our patriarchs, all the way that we understand that, and now we're in Egypt, he makes them great, We're under subjugation. That's our history. And then he delivers us out of Egypt. Okay? And he goes on. Verse 19. 
And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So he immediately goes through Joshua now. So very quickly in one sentence, he gets them out of Egypt. And now they have this land that was promised to Abraham. This is our story. This is what we believe. He he conquers um, all these lands that are in Canaan. And he goes through this. And and we read a lot of what's going on in Judges. If you were here when we went through Judges for a lot of this. So he's telling the story. This is the story of God. Just to be clear, let me summarize. God makes all things. The world's broken. He chooses a people, the people of Israel. They didn't do anything to, to deserve him choosing them. And as they continue on in their journey, what we come to find out is they're in slavery. God delivers them. God uses them to give them the land that they, he originally promised. That's our story so far. Continuing on. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them the land of inheritance. Verse 20. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. So he's starting to get into to 1 Samuel. So he says this took about 450 years is what he just summarized. So what we have is in Egypt, they're there for 400 years. They wander the desert for 40 years. And it takes them about 10 years to conquer the land uh, in, in Canaan. Okay, so that's our history. All this is going to matter in a second, I promise. If you're like... I don't know what's going on. If you're new, if you just become a Christian, you're probably not familiar with these stories, but hopefully as we continue to use these uh, things, it will equip you in the right way. Verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my, my heart, who will do all my will. So now he's getting through second Samuel. Here is Israel. They're in a land and God says, now here's a King. Now, if you know the story, well, it's actually the people demanding a King, but here, uh, God raises up Saul and this guy, Saul's King. Saul ends up doing a lot of terrible things. And so he raises up David as King. And this is the story that he's telling David is King. Now I need you to hear this because he's going to use this idea. He jumped to, to this, um, in two verses, he explained all the fir- in one book, all what he did in two verses of the first five books of the Bible. So he's getting to why Saul and ultimately David are important because his next statement is this. So after he goes on 40 years, all um, David raising him up verse 23, and it's of this man's offspring, David, it's of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So in six verses, he summarizes the whole old Testament because he's trying to get somewhere. And this is really important. Hear me when I say this, um, our story absolutely matters. Everything we read within the Old Testament before Matthew absolutely matters. But what's integral to all of what we understand of those first, this first half of our Bible is that it's all leading up to this guy, Jesus. And Paul's telling that story in such a way to go, hey, remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember these guys? Well, it all matters because of Jesus. Remember David? He was a man after God's own heart. It matters because of Jesus. And so now I need you to put yourself in the context. Here's Paul preaching to predominant Jews. They're waiting for the guy who's supposed to be the fulfillment of Moses, the fulfillment of David. And here Paul goes, he's come already. He he, he came, you guys. It's Jesus. He brought the Messiah. God brought him. So we continue on. This is what it says. Um, Verse 24, before his coming, talking about Jesus, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? And I, uh, sorry, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. 
So before you understand who the Messiah is, just know there was someone who came before him. This guy named John, who everyone thought was the Messiah, but he's not. He declared himself unworthy to even untie the sandals of the Messiah. So it goes on. So now we have before Jesus is born. Paul's continuing to tell the stories. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those who are among you who, who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Now this is, this is where we're all going to start to tie together. We're halfway through a sermon. It's a lot of text. Okay, he now goes, this story is important because it's your story. He immediately ties in what's going on with all the Old Testament into Jesus to go, he's come to us. So he's not just out there, a figurative Messiah. No, he came to the people of Israel. He came to us. This is what Paul's doing. Verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him, him being Jesus. Verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So, so now Paul is, is going to do it a little different than Stephen and Peter did it. Um, in Stephen and Peter's example, he's talking, they're talking to people who directly were part of the crucifixion of Jesus. But these people up in Antioch, they, they didn't even know Jesus existed. And so now he goes to say, hey, your friends, they crucified Jesus. Okay. Now here's what's interesting. They crucified him. And in doing so, every single Saturday, they're getting together and they're reading the law. They're reading about this guy to come. And they know all that's supposed to happen. He's supposed to experience pain and suffering. And even though they're reading the Bible every single week, every time they're getting together to do this, they actually do what they believed was supposed to be done to their Messiah. They fulfilled the scriptures. A guy named um, which, uh, uh, Jeff Surratt, uh, I've never seen Jeff spelt this way. So I asked Jude how he spelled it, and he insisted that it was pronounced Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, which I'm assuming some of you guys, most of you know that. I didn't. So Jeff Surratt. This is what he says. I think it's beautiful. Um, you know what? Let's do the Jeff Surratt quote later. How about that? Um, let, let's, let, let me share John Stott with you, and then we'll get to Jeff Surratt. Uh, if you could put up John Stott's quote. This is what he says. Here is the irony. Jews and worshiping Gentiles are in the synagogue every Sabbath listening to the prophets speak of Jesus. Yet they are unable to recognize that the scriptures are pointing to him. So they're reading the scriptures. They're studying them, but they can't see that they're pointing to Jesus. Okay? This is sheer irony. By rejecting Jesus, they are fulfilling the scriptures that foretold or foretell uh, his rejection. The very things the scriptures say should happen to Jesus, the Jews of Jerusalem carried out. The people who want to live in accordance with the scriptures had fulfilled the prophecies by ironically rejecting God's messenger. So the people of Israel who want to receive the Messiah end up rejecting him because of the very scriptures that they think he's not following. This is, this is crazy. So the people of Israel reject Jesus, and this is Paul's declaration. You missed it. You missed it. Now, um, he goes on to finish with uh, the, the story of his resurrection. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to all the people. Continuing on this, he recognized, Paul recognizes if there's one thing, and this is really important for all of us even in this room, in our story to recognize, it's the resurrection. 
So the apostles are going from land to land, from Antioch uh, to Poseidon. They're going from to in, into Cyprus on that island. They're going with this one recognition. We believe there was a guy who was dead, who called himself God, and God raised him from the dead. Now, um, I was told, I've never experienced this, but I, I was told, uh, a guy named Tim Keller, if you're familiar with him, uh, he... My buddy was saying he went to his uh, church a couple years ago, and anytime someone comes up with any type of debate question or any type of frustration, what ends up happening is Tim Keller just asks, well, what do you think of the resurrection? And the idea being if, if you believe the resurrection, then pretty much anything that you would have against God falls to the wayside. Well, I don't see how he can, he can part water. That's just not uh, uh, possible. Science would prove that's not possible. Do you believe in the resurrection? Yes. Well, then it's pretty much possible. He can do whatever he wants, right? So, so whatever debate you would have, if you believe in the resurrection, then we don't have really any qualms about anything else. And so Paul is laying this out. And what he does here in eight verses sums up the life of Jesus where it took six verses to sum up the Old Testament. Paul's intentionally putting the story around Jesus. Now, this is important because we get to some of the why. But before that, um, he recognizes who he's talking to and he wants to prove it. So he says, man, your friends, they rejected Jesus. Your relatives in Jerusalem, they rejected Jesus and they missed the whole Bible. So let me prove to you how the Bible actually points to Jesus. This is what he says in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. This is what Paul's saying. Paul's going, you're looking at Moses... And you're looking specifically at David as this anointed one. But here's what the Psalms tell us. The very Psalms that David wrote. That, that the anointed one, the Messiah, he's not going to see corruption. He, he, he's ultimately not going to stay dead. Now you're looking at David going, well, he's the anointed one. That's who, that's who Psalms is talking about. No, you're wrong. David died. He served God in his generation the way he was supposed to. But I know somebody who didn't stay dead who actually fulfilled the second song. It's Jesus. And so in this moment, man, I remember the second week we were together, two and a half years ago, I did my best to like melee us with this idea of Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. Ultimately, if you can look through the lens of the Old Testament, seeing that Jesus fulfills all the things that we're looking for as shadows, as Hebrew calls it, in the Old Testament, meaning um, Isaac points to Jesus, right? David and Goliath points to Jesus. Moses, him rescuing his people from slavery. That sound familiar, right? It points to Jesus. And Paul stands up and goes, you've missed the Old Testament because you don't see that it's pointing to Jesus. So our story, everything we know about being a doctor, about being a nurse, about being a firefighter, a teacher, being administration, whatever it is, it's meant to point to Jesus. This has something to do with his kingdom. And this is what Paul continues to put in front of us. And now he's going to tell us why it matters. So last week, um, um, I'll actually be over here after service if you want to come up and say hi. I was supposed to say that in the beginning and I forgot. But somebody came up and this, it, it was a family and I'm sorry if you're here right now, but she was like 12 years old and they originally went to Redemption Tempe and um, Ricardo, Pastor Ricardo and Tempe, she's like, do you do the therefore thing? And I'm like, 
The therefore thing is anytime you come to a therefore, always ask what the therefore is there for. She thought that was the most hilarious thing ever. I'm like, yeah, I do the therefore thing. I mean, if that makes me cool, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll do it right now. Um, um, so, so, so it is important, that kind of undergirding, to say, like, when you do read a therefore, it's always important to ask what this therefore is there for. And it's pushing us back to everything that he just said. So listen, um, verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore. So everything that I just said, the story that leads up to Jesus, listen to what I have to say. Brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. If we can just stop, that's good news. And it's good news to us, without question, but it's definitely good news to them. I mean, they have books on top of books of laws they're supposed to follow. I mean, the mission would require them to, to rest on the Sabbath, but what resting on the Sabbath means you can only take a certain amount of steps. You can, you can carry an olive, but you can't carry a fig. I mean, there's all these crazy rules. And, and, and what Paul just said is, stop. Stop. The reason Jesus is hard for you to get your mind around sometimes is because you think coming here on Sunday is what makes Jesus happy, and it's not. You think that like when you fail, he's so far off from you and he's not. You think for some reason you've done so many things that, that he, can't, he can't even see you the right way. Or in some of you, you grew up in church and you've done all the right things and you think that's why he loves you. Stop. Paul, Paul like in this moment goes, because all of this is true, he's freed you from that crap. The idea that your righteousness is anything before him it's not. But, but it doesn't just stop there because he also throws out another therefore. Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So it seems like in verses 38 and 39, he lays out this beauty of what Jesus offers. But, but then he tells us in verses 40 and 41, be careful you don't miss it. Because if you think that you're going to continue to rely on your righteousness, beware. Beware. Be careful, man. Be careful. And, and here, here's the truth. Um, when I got saved in high school, um, I got saved, as you guys know, into like the Assemblies of God. And regardless of the Assemblies of God, it was a tradition at the time, which many traditions still do this, where you kind of walk the aisle, right? So here I am. My job as a pastor at the end of service would make everyone close their eyes. And <laughs> uh, I'm going to jab a little bit because I think it was hilarious. But I'm going to have everyone close their eyes. And if anyone wants to accept Jesus Christ, I want you to raise your hand. Now, if no one raises their hand, I go, I see that one. Right? And then that encourages someone else, even though no one raised their hand. Super shady stuff. But anyway, um, but, but regardless of all that, okay, what, what, what took place in this is as people wanted to come to know Jesus, they would walk this aisle, they'd walk down the aisle, they'd be given a New Testament or, or you know, the Gospel of John and Psalms and Proverbs or whatever it is, and, and they'd probably sign a card so we can follow up on them. And that really like, and I'm not saying it's anything bad. My personal experience, I saw the ineffectiveness in the long term of it that I really grow, grew cold to that method, okay? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong. Matter of fact, in about eight hours, people are going to fill the Cardinal Stadium, and that's exactly what they're going to do. So I'm not saying that it's wrong. My point in saying it is, um, in the ministry that I've had the opportunity to lead, I've avoided that because I, I don't like it. 
But I got to be careful myself because there's moments where that's almost what God does. And I don't mean all, like, that is what God does. Essentially, this is what Paul is doing in this moment. He's going, hey, listen, Jesus offers you life and goodness, or you can choose to perish. Which one is it? Right? And it's in your face and it's there. And I want to be careful that I don't just let everyone walk out and go, well, yeah, I mean, Jesus is pretty cool. No, listen, at the end of the day, you can rely on your own works and you can miss the unending love of Christ. I mean, never stopping, continuing to pursue you, or you can follow him with everything that's in you. You can see the beauty of his grace. You can lay down your own righteousness, lay down your own pride. It's up to you. Now, um, Spurgeon says this. This is my Spurgeon quote for the week. I don't have one at the end for you, so I apologize. This is what he says concerning this idea. He says, uh, how are you now going to treat this word of salvation that has come to you? Now, let me just stop very quickly that you, um, uh, and maybe you're in here and you honestly don't know Jesus. This is where I start to get scared, right? I'm not going to make you raise your hand or walk to the front. I'm not going to give you an orange Bible. But in this moment, um, here, here, here you are, and, and maybe you don't know Jesus. I want you to hear what Paul is offering, what Spurgeon says about what Paul is offering. But also, some of you would call yourself Christian, and like, you're teetering that line, like, he's cool, but he's not everything. Hear what he says. How are you going to now treat this word of salvation that has come to you? I fear that you may say, as so many others have said before you, I will think of it tomorrow. You do not really mean to think of it uh, if you talk like that. Let me put the matter to you very plainly. You either love Christ or you do not love him. Which is it? That tomorrow plea is a lie. Satan has invented it in order that he may enable men to reject Christ and yet flatter their souls with the notion that they are not doing so. Come then, it may, uh, I'm sorry, come, then it may be that this is the last time the question will ever be put to you in this fashion. Remember that the bell shall toil, uh, shall toll before long for you. Here's where he gets a little rugged. And six feet of earth shall lay, shall, shall uh, hold down each one who comes to this church and who now sits and listens to the word of this salvation. Oh, whatever you do, do not procrastinate. So Paul's looking at this in the context going, Jesus has come. Do you accept that? Do you believe everything I just told you in this story? That he came, that he died, that he rose from the dead? And don't play this, the silly game of, well, yeah, I don't know. Let me think about it. Now, I'm not sitting here saying make a rash decision, but at the same time, you going, eh, is not the answer. To contemplate, even now let the Holy Spirit wash warm water over your frozen heart is something that I believe Paul's calling everyone to do in this moment. Now, he's not done, obviously, because he goes on to say this in regards to, this is uh, now Luke telling the story, Paul finishing with um, kind of that ultimatum. Luke tells the story of this as the people respond to what Paul said. And as they went out, Paul and Barnabas, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the, uh, at, of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. So Paul and Barnabas lay out what I just did my best to lay out to you. So everyone goes and tells their friends. They're super jacked about what they heard. And he says, almost the whole city gathered. So now all these people are going, hey, say what you said last week about that guy named Jesus. So here's how we'll we'll finish the big passages of our text and then spend a little bit of time of, of laying some stuff down. Verse 45, 
But when the Jews saw the crowd, so the Jews see now, as they were in the synagogue, see that Paul and Barnabas are attracting a bunch of people, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken to Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Uh, This is small font. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. So what we have is now all these people are gathered. The Jews don't like what's going on. They're seeing in jealousy. So they start to conspire against Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas look at the Jews and go, here's what you don't understand, man. It came to you, but because you don't want it, we're going to the Gentiles because you don't want to hear what we have to say. We're going to the Gentiles and the Gentiles blow up. Now this is what's really odd as a Bible teacher, but man, even as a Christian, as you read the Bible, it feels like sometimes as Christians, we are like lining up with who the Jews are. And, and I don't mean that in like the theological replacement theology or super cessationism theology. If you're not familiar with those terms, there's a big debate as to whether or not the, the church has, has replaced the Jews. That's not what I mean. I mean, as you read, um, as you read the Bible, specifically in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's almost as like the church has at points become the religious folk. And, 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 and here's, here's all I want to say about that. Um, what was the role of the people of God in the Old Testament has not changed in the New Testament. Meaning, it is still the people of God, you and I, it is still our job to pursue God with everything within us before people. So we, as Christians, live every moment of every day for him. But we don't do it as recluse people. We do it before people. We live out being blessed to be a blessing. And the people of Israel miss this. And so Paul's going, I'm bringing it to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles' goal, even in this moment, is to bring it to other Gentiles. And so as he continues this this declaration, hear hear what happens in verse 49. And the word of the Lord was uh, spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the, the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, or Ichnium, I don't know how to begin. And the disciples were filled with the joy, with the Holy Spirit. Filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is this uh, Jeff quote that I want to share with you guys. So um, here, here they're, they're, they're not happy with everything that's going on. And I love what it says in uh, uh, verse 50. I don't love it, but this is exactly what they do. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city. So they don't like what's going on. And so they begin to persecute Paul and Barnabas. And if we can just stop, and this is where we'll finish. Um, how the Jews react in this moment, remember, our story is real big. This is why our story is important. How the Jews act in this moment is a microcosm of how they really act in the entire Bible. Like, this is what happens. They, they don't like someone pressing against what they're doing, and so they incite persecution. I mean, this is, this is ABC is to exactly what happens with Jesus. So, listen, this is this uh, Jeff... Um, Sirach quote, and I thought it was important uh, to share because I think it gets out why the Jews are doing what they're doing and why the Jews of that time are upset. And then I promise we will finish. Israel created, created an elaborate and effective church that ran very well without God. 
The priests and the Levites excelled at their roles. The sacrificial system was geared to handle the crowds at Passover efficiently. And the Jewish people knew their needs were met with consistency and care. 400 years after God stepped away, the Jews no longer missed him. They had created a church without God. Then one weekend, he showed up. He ignored their service rundown. He tore up their resource table, and he violated their policies and procedures. And every time he came to a service, havoc ensued. Finally, they had to either completely change the way they did church or kill God. They chose to kill God. So they, they, they have what they have, and it all makes sense. It, it, it's okay. Like, check it out. You're good with God, and it's nice and clean as long as you do certain things. That's easy. As someone who's like, let's get it in, we'll run the Grand Canyon, I'll fast for a hundred days, whatever it is, as long as it's clean, like if I got to do this, then I'll do this, and it's real easy. But the gospel messes all of that up because you can do all those things for the wrong reason and be wrong. And the Jews don't like that. And so Jesus blows this up, and so they kill Jesus, and this is now why they're persecuting Paul and Barnabas. So here's the big question, why is this important? Like, why would Luke continue to tell this story in the book of Acts using the big story? Why is this such a big deal? And I think it's what Israel misses. Why the story and this story is important is because what Israel misses. What happened with Israel is they stopped relying on God. They missed the fact that he was in everything. So let me prove it to you. I have 13 places in our text that show this. Look at verse 17, the very first part. It was God who chose Israel from the people of the earth for his special purposes. Look at the middle of verse 17. It was God who made the people great during their stay in Egypt. Not, you can chalk it up for natural fertility if you want, but it, it says God did that, right? You can already see. It's, it's Paul's giving God the credit in this. Look at the back half of verse 17. It says that God led them out of Egypt with an uplifted arm. Even though their feet were the ones who walked out of Egypt, who led them out? God did it. It's his story. We're not done. Verse 19, the first half. It was God who destroyed the seven nations of the land in Canaan. Sure, people picked up swords and did the battling, but it was God who did it. Look at the second half of of, uh, 19. It was God who gave Israel the land of Canaan as an inheritance. He owned it. It was his to give to his children. Verse 20, it was God who gave them judges. These rulers weren't raised up by mere human standards. It was God who gave them these things. Verse 21, it was God who gave to Israel uh, her first king, Saul. Verse 22, uh, God raised up David, the son of Jesse. God chose him. He, uh, you know, David, he's a young nobody and God chooses to install David. Verse 23, it was God who brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Verse 26, it, Paul says this, uh, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Who is the, who's the actor in this moment of that passive verb, right? So um, they're receiving the message of salvation. That means somebody had to send it. It was God who sent the message of salvation. We're not done. Let's look at this text rightly. Verse 29, it was God playing out the crucifixion. Listen to what he says. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him... Jesus, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Who wrote the book in which it was fulfilled? It was God's plan for the crucifixion. We're not 
done. Verse 29, and it was God, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, um, verse 30. It was God who raises Jesus from the dead, but God raised him from the dead. You can see that in verse 30. And lastly, verse 48, it was God who appoints to uh, eternal life. As many were appointed to eternal life, believed. So here's what Israel's missing, and my fear is, and I think ultimately as elders and as leaders, as we try to pastor our church together, our job is to continue to remind you that even though you wake up tomorrow morning, and you get ready for work, and you have your story. Like, you'll be able to look back, and you'll be able to see the the funny moments with your kids, the times with your spouse, the times you were single, the times you, like, had to share Coke. John and Tree tell a story of how they had to share this Coke. Like, like whatever it is in these moments, as you look back and you see your story, you must recognize who undergirded that whole thing. Who who left you in that one-bedroom apartment? Who gave you your spouse? Who brought you to this church? Who's discipling you? Who blessed you with children? Who gave you that job? And yet we worry, right? Because it's our story. And it's so hard to get, to get wrapped up in what's happening to me and lose focus. And so the Bible right now in Acts 13 says, stop and remember. I know pain's there. I know joy's there. But this is all part of something bigger. It's part of God's story. He's the main character. And us as people are meant to constantly press in and remind ourselves of that good news over and over and over again. Because I don't think these 13 things are just there on accident. I think in so many ways that the people of Israel chose to rely on themselves. Let's not make that same mistake. Here's what I'll leave you with. Brian Chappell told of a story, and um, I read it about four years ago in um, Covenant Magazine. It's crazy, too, because uh, um, Sarah or Sandra McCracken, uh, the, guy that, the, the lady that uh, Josh likes, um, we actually sing a lot of her songs. She ended up telling, uh, telling the story in one of her albums. But it's happened in um, uh, Brian Chappell's hometown, and he tells this story, which was uh, mind-boggling. It's uh, this idea that he lived uh, semi-close to a river. And I've, I think I've shared this story before with us as a church very early on, but I think it's worth seeing here with what the people of Israel are missing. Um, he lived next to a river, and in this part of the river, a lot of sand had to be pulled back uh, from the river so boats can pass. And as the ebb and flow of the water goes in and out, you have these big piles of sand, right, that, that are on the side of these riverbanks. And the problem with that is, um, as the water dissipates from the sand, the sand becomes like snow, like powder, it becomes real fluffy, and there's little pockets that you can drop into, and, and people have absolutely suffocated, right? They fall into these holes, the sand comes in on them, and they end up dying. And uh, Brian tells uh, this story of uh, when he was a teenager, uh, he remembers there was these two little kids, about seven and ten, who um, went out playing. They, they told their uh, mom and dad that they were going to go on play. And as they, they go on play, it's kind of getting late, 9, 10 o'clock. The mom sees the bike. Maybe they just went out and played somewhere. They knew not to play by the river or at least to get close. And so um, uh, they start looking for them. What's going on? 11 o'clock, 11.30, 12 o'clock. They don't know where uh, their two boys are. And so eventually they call the cops. Like, where are these kids? And now the town, which isn't a very big town, is out searching for these two little boys. And so it goes on into the morning. And as, as the sun starts to rise, he tells the story, as the sun starts to rise, he hears one of the officers goes, I found one, I found one. And they all start to gather around and it's the seven-year-old brother who's buried all the way up to his neck, just below his neck with sand, right? And he's completely unconscious. So they all gather around and they start digging the sand out around him so he can breathe again. And as they get to about his waist, they stop and he starts to come to, he's coughing up sand and they're asking him, you know, what happened? Where, where are you? And the mom continues looking at him, please with him, where's your brother, baby? Where's your brother? Where's your brother? And he starts to cry, right? And he goes, where's your brother? Where's your brother? It's okay. Just tell us where your brother is. And with tears, as he can't bar- like barely breathe, he goes, I'm standing on his shoulders. 
And, and the idea why Brian Chapel told this, this story is not just to like create emotion in this room, but to remind us that, that here's this older brother who knew as the moment they hit um, that sand in that pocket, they, they weren't going to make it. And the only way one of them was to survive is if the other was to stand on the shoulders. And so the older brother sacrifices his life by putting his younger brother to stand on his shoulders to get his head above sand. Hear me when I say this. This is exactly what God does. You're not standing or your head is not above sand. You're not breathing. You don't have life because of you. It is because of the good grace of God and you're saved because of the good grace of Jesus. We are standing on his shoulders. May we as a church and a people never forget that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for a reminder in Acts 13 of your story. We're grateful, God, that um, as we, we, we hear this story and we read this story, um, a little bit of trepidation and fear that we would fall into the same rut that the people of Israel did, that we would rely on ourselves, that we would miss Jesus. And, oh, please, we don't, we don't want to perish eternally, but even in this own life, our own life, the, the joys that we would miss because of you and your grandeur and your majesty and how you lead us, help us. I know for me, and I think I speak on for behalf of everyone in this room, Lord, that um, my heart, it, it tends to go towards myself, like what I want and my own desires. My proclivity seems to be selfish, and I so easily forget your story. Jesus, I forget your cross. Holy Spirit, I forget your leading. So our prayer would be that as we read this story, we would be reminded that it is not us, that we would, re- would not reject the cross because we envy or we're jealous or anything like that, but we would see you rightly. Help us. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. More than anything, we're reminded today that we desperately need you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.